because the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about restoration. Restoration vertically first, and restoration one to another horizontally second. Welcome to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. It is a joy to have you listening today, and we pray that you will be encouraged, challenged, and motivated to live for God like never before. And now, with today's message, here's Pastor John Couch. Fathers, we come before you now, God, I just pray that as we run hard after you and your glory and your praise, God, as we are in this cultural war where there's a battle for the Bible, oh God, I pray, God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit right now that the Holy Spirit himself would be unleashed with a vengeance, with a fury in every heart, every mind, every soul listening today. God, move me out of the way. Hide me behind the shadows of the cross. God, give me a divine unction right now that you might increase, that I might decrease, that your name and your power might go forth with such glory. And to you be the praise. And to you be the glory. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen. Now take your Bible and turn to Philemon. Philemon 22 through 25 today, we have made it to the end of this glorious, glorious private letter from Paul, and I am so excited about today's message. I believe God is going to work in a powerful way. I believe my life is going to be changed. I believe your life is going to be changed. I believe God is going to do a transforming work in all of our hearts as we make much of Him all for His glory. Amen? And so as you're turning there, again, we are concluding this series, The Pursuit of Interceding for Others. And the message entitled today is simply this, Restoration Modeled. The title of today's message is Restoration Modeled. What comes to your mind when you think of the word restoration? I'm sure right now there's many things that are buzzing in your mind. A positive, negative, maybe somewhere in between. But here in this glorious text, as we wrap up this private letter from Paul to Philemon, we see Paul so beautifully, so gloriously modeling restoration. And we need restoration in our country. We need restoration in our churches. We need restoration in our homes. We need restoration between us individually and God. Amen? Maybe you're here today and maybe God is already ringing your bell. Maybe you're thinking, preacher, you're reading my mail. I need restoration. Well, so many times we don't have restoration with others because we first don't have restoration with God. See, so many times... We don't have the restoration we crave and desire with others because the reality, if truth be told, we don't have true restoration with God. We've never truly surrendered and given everything to Him. Maybe that's you listening right now. Maybe the reality of your life is you've never truly given everything to God. He doesn't want to be your friend with benefits, He's not a hood ornament. He's not the fuzzy dice around your mirror. 
He's not your spiritual vending machine, your cosmic Santa Claus, your divine butler. That's not who God desires to be in your life. He desires to not be a part of your life. God desires to take over your life. And I believe the reality in so many people across our country today is that, oh yeah, God's a part of their life. But they've never truly allowed him to take over their life. And so here today, Paul shows so beautifully what it means to model restoration. Here's what he writes to Philemon. Verse 22, he says this. But meanwhile, don't miss that, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Now look at verse 23. Here goes the list of the who's who. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Verse 24, as do Mark and Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Now look at verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What a glorious text as Paul writes here in these final concluding verses. And he says this in verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. I love this. Because, I love this because Paul is looking forward. Paul is looking with great expectation and hope. He's in prison. And he says, look, I want you to go ahead and prepare for me. I want you to make ready. For I trust that through your prayers, through your intercession, that I shall be granted to you. That I will be with you. I trust this. I have hope in it. I have a confidence. I have this expectation that it's going to happen. But don't miss this. He said through your prayers. Plural. See, there's power in prayer, amen? When I studied this particular text here in preparation for this message, I noticed two key things here out of the gate, out of the front end, out of the chute, so to speak. Number one is this. Paul, again, was obviously expecting to be released from prison, to be granted from this confinement. If you go back to Philippians 2, 24, you will see there that he's in prison. He's confined. And oh, it's so beautiful that he's expecting with hope to be granted to them. He's reiterating his belief in the power of prayer. And think about this. Don't miss this. Think about how this great expectation of hope, think about his reiterating the power of prayer, Think about how this is going to impact Philemon, the person who the letter is addressed to. See, Paul believed in prayer. How about you today? Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that God still answers prayer? Oh, he may not answer it our way, but the reality is this. Do you, do I truly believe that God is able? Do we believe that even if he doesn't go our way, we're still going to go his way? Do you today believe in the power of prayer? See, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
Again, it doesn't mean that he's going to be this divine butler and give us every wish we want. But do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that if God wills that he can come through? Do you believe it? Do you believe he has a sovereign plan for your life? Do you believe that he has a sovereign plan for your mess today? And perhaps your mess is self-inflicted. Our God is so great that when our messes are self-inflicted, we still have to bear the consequences, oh yes, but God can take your mess and create a beautiful, glorious message as a billboard for a watching, dying world to see how great He is, how He can take even the most vilest life, the most sinful life, the most dark and depraved life, and through His resurrecting power in Jesus Christ, He can make the way where there seems to be no way. Think about how this impacted Philemon when he received this letter. But number two, notice how Paul is relying, he's relying, he's counting on the prayers of his prayer posse. Don't underestimate, dear one, don't underestimate today the eternal work that God can do in your heart when you are humble. See, Paul's relying on them. He's not saying, look, I got this all figured out. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No, he's relying on others to carry him through the challenge, carry him through the trial, intercede for him, stand in the gap for him. All the things we've been talking about, Paul is actually doing what he's preaching. He's relying on others to say, hey, we'll hold your arms up in the battle, Paul. Because Paul knew this potent truth. That brokenness, your brokenness, my brokenness, Paul's brokenness, that brokenness is often the exact vehicle that God uses to bring us to Christ. And brokenness in our own lives is often the vehicle God uses to bring other people to him as they watch us live out Christ in us, the hope of glory, as the word of God dwells in us richly. Isn't this amazing how this works? See, that's why your pain has purpose. My pain has purpose. The real question is not do you have pain. The real question is what are you going to do with your pain? Are you going to run from your pain? Or are you going to embrace your pain? Are you going to understand that God often gives us as a beautiful gift the gift of pain? And the question is, is he going to alleviate it? Is he going to remove it? Or does he say, look, here's the deal. I'm going to actually give it to you as a glorious gift so that as you trust me in the midst of your valley, other people will look at you and say, hey, I have the same challenge you have. I'm going through the same pain. I'm going through the same hurt, the same disappointments that you're going through. Oh, I'm watching you rely on your great God to get you through the pain. I know this. I want what you have. And now you, now I am a billboard for the gospel. See, Paul knew this. And he's humbly relying on their prayers. That's why key number one, write it down. Key number one, write this down. If I am to intercede for others, I must be willing to expect with great hope. Let me say that again. Key number one, write it down. 
If I am to intercede for others, I must be willing, don't miss that part, I must be willing to expect with great hope. you got to remember, just like in verse 21 where Paul has high expectations of Philemon, don't miss that. Here in verse 22, Paul has high expectations in his circumstances. In verse 21, he has high expectations of Philemon. Here in verse 22, he has high expectations in his circumstances. How on earth do you have high expectations in your circumstances? Well, the only way you can truly have high expectations in difficult circumstances are to truly have your hope and identity and security wound up in Jesus. If your hope and identity and security are wound up in anything or anyone else, your expectations for a mighty move of God in your life will be very low. I mean, think about it. We've all been there. How many times, maybe just today, that you're pounding on the door of heaven. You are beating on the door of heaven with fervent, humble, God-centric prayer. And then if truth be told, don't lie, you're in church. If truth be told, when God comes through and he answers your prayer, he answers my prayer exactly how we have desired for it to be answered, we're the ones that are most surprised. How many times has that happened in your life and my life that we've pounded on the door of heaven and our expectation has been so low that when he has come through, we're the ones that are most shocked. See, so often when the bar is low, many times so are the results. Oh, church family, I pray today, I pray you hear my heart, and I pray you hear the word of God even more, that our God is able. He's able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined. Our God is able. Does it mean he's going to grant you exactly what you want? I don't know. I'm not God. But I know this. Our God is sovereign. Our God is able. And wherever he leads you, he will feed you. And wherever he guides you, he will provide for you. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? Are you willing to be like Paul, that in the midst of your prison, you're saying, oh, prepare a room for me. Make it ready. I know my God is able. But even if he doesn't go my way, I'm still going his way. Think about John. Write this down. The Gospel of John 16, verse 32 through 33. Write this down. Glorious, glorious inspiration and challenge simultaneously. Here it is, John 16, verse 32. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered. Here's Jesus' warning, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, he says, because the Father is with me. Just pause there for a moment. Man, when it's you and God, and all that's in your circle is you and God, take this to the bank. 
You are always in the majority. Look at verse 33. Here we go. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you, that in me, Jesus speaking, capital M, in Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, he goes on and says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Boy, what a crazy text Jesus is throwing down on, isn't he? Here he is, he comes out of the gate and he says, look, here's the deal, you're going to be scattered. I'm going to be alone, I'm not really alone, I'm with the Father. Oh, by the way, here's why I've spoken these things to you. That in the midst of your pain, he says, you're going to have tribulation. But before he says that, he says that in me, in Christ, that's where you have peace. See, the only place that you will have peace is if you truly have given your life to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself. You'll never have true peace unless you've given your life to the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And then Jesus says, look, here's the deal. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Literally, tribulation, a pressure, a pressing together. And some of you today, your life is a mess. You are going through such heartache and such turmoil and such pain. There is pressure and pressing together. And again, perhaps God is not moving you out of the fiery furnace because he's waiting for you to truly give everything to him, to truly rely on him for your peace, not for your circumstances changing. But we all struggle with that, don't we? I'm guilty of this. So many times I'm looking for peace and I don't really want Jesus, if I'm honest, I just want my circumstances to change. Well, here's the deal with this. That's idolatry. If we want anything more than we want Jesus, we're living in idolatry. And Jesus says, look, in me, you're going to have peace. And then he goes, oh, by the way, in this world, you're going to have trouble, pressure, a pressing together. And aren't you glad he didn't end the verse there, period. Good luck. Hope this works out. Hope you cross your fingers. No, what did he say next? In the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the tribulation, he says, but be of good cheer. That sounds insane. Who in their right mind is of good cheer, of good joy in the midst of their trials? Not too many people I know, but Jesus says that in me, you will have peace. See, you can be of good cheer in the midst of your trial when you rest in Jesus. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Our God through Jesus Christ is not dead, but he's fully alive. And Paul knew this. He's writing to Philemon saying, look, I get this. Go ahead and prepare a room for me. I'm expecting with great hope. I believe my God is able. I believe he can accomplish all that he needs to accomplish, even the most insurmountable things in the flesh of my life. Paul's saying, I know he can do this. And yet Paul also knew that if God didn't go his way, he was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And if it was better for him to have pain and suffering as a billboard for the gospel, oh, just like he said in Philippians, I want you to know that my suffering has not been in vain, but it's actually been for the furtherance of the gospel, that the whole palace guard has seen this Jesus who is called the Christ in my life. And when you study that, you can understand this, that many times the palace guard, the praetorium guard, had upwards of 10,000 soldiers. They would have never seen Jesus modeled if Paul did not have his pain. And Jesus right there in John 16, he says, be of good cheer. Why? Because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Literally, I, Jesus, have totally conquered the world. Look at verse 23 as Paul now weaves his way so systematically to the end of this text. And these salutations again here are kind of the the who's who's. This was the club. This was the band of brothers. And they're very identical when you study Colossians 4 verse 10. Very identical. And yet as one commentator said regarding verse 23 of Philemon... He said the listing of these individuals is the gamut from wealth to poverty, from educated to uneducated, and all were needed. Wow, what a great observation. See, God uses people from all over the spectrum. And again, the whole point is to give Him glory, to make much of His name, that we would all decrease, that we would all hit the deck, and we would all just stare at Him and say, worthy, worthy is our great Almighty God. And so here in verse 23, here's the list. Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you. Epaphras, his name means lovely. Some scholars believe that Epaphras was actually Philemon's pastor. But Paul says this, my fellow prisoner. See, Epaphras was just not a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying, look, I'm a fellow prisoner of Paul's. But then he says this, Paul does, about Epaphras, and this is always the key, that he's a fellow prisoner in what? In just theory? In friendship? Is he his pen pal? No, he's his fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. In Christ, anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. What a powerful image Paul is preaching here through this message of this private letter to Philemon. It's a glorious message, it's a powerful visual. That he is painting of the commitment that Epaphras has to Paul while he is in confinement. And the reason he's so committed to Paul is because Epaphras is so committed to God. See, Epaphras also knew the grace of God and so did Paul. And this is why they behaved like they did. Because their hope was in Christ. Their hope was not in their circumstances. Their hope was in Jesus. How about you? Where's your hope? Where our hope resides always dictates who we serve. 
where my hope, where your hope resides, always, always dictates who or what we serve. See, Paul knew this, and his life was no longer his own. Again, what a powerful, powerful portrait that Paul is emphasizing here of the commitment Epaphras has to him as he himself is imprisoned. And what a glorious testimony to you and me today that we must be those people, again, that stand in the gap, that will be willing to intercede for others as we restore others, as we model this restoration. It is so key. It is so important because church family today, how will a lost and dying world know what restoration is? If the church of Jesus Christ doesn't model it. And then Paul adds these two words. He says, greets you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Literally means to receive joyfully. Again, think about restoration Think about what it means to set the tone, to set the example that we receive others joyfully. The restoration is modeled. The example is set forth. God gets glorified and people come to the cross of Jesus Christ. But then Paul begins to weave his way even deeper in the who's who list, if you will, continues. Verse 24 as do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Mark, don't miss this. This is Mark, who is John Mark, and his name means defense. You've got to remember, he was the author of the Gospel of Mark, and Marcus, of course, is his Latin surname. His Jewish name was John. But don't forget, he was the cousin of Barnabas and a fellow worker with Paul for the gospel. You've got to remember, as restoration is being modeled here in this text by Paul, that John Mark let Paul down. Remember the first missionary journey of Paul? And John Mark was there, and he let Paul down. For you that don't remember, just write down this text here as I unpack this for us today. Write down Acts chapter 15. Verses 36 through 41. Acts 15, 36 through 41. And here's the division over John Mark. Dr. Luke writes this and he says in verse 36 of Acts 15. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Sounds like a really good idea. Look at 37. Now Barnabas was determined, don't miss this, to take with them John called Mark. Now look at verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one, John Mark, who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they, Paul and Barnabas, departed from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. 
Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Wow, oh wow. Here's Barnabas, cousin of John Mark. Here's Paul, the great apostle. And John Mark says, hey, I'm going to depart and not go do the work. And Barnabas says, hey, yeah, I like your idea, Paul. It's a great idea. Let's go around and check in on the churches and see how they're doing. Oh, by the way, Paul, I'm going to take John Mark. Paul's like, uh, this ain't going to happen. Uh, this joker, he departed from us before. We can't count on him. And now there became a sharp contention, a, such a dispute such discord that they actually broke fellowship from one another. Now don't miss that. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about restoration. Restoration vertically first, and restoration one to another horizontally second. And you're going to see here in just a moment how powerful the restoration power is of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Because reconciliation is always possible when two parties are willing to reconcile. Restoration is always possible when the two parties are willing to restore. And you've got to remember that Paul and Barnabas did reconcile. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, it says this, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? But even deeper, make a note of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. This is Paul at the end of his life. He's about to be poured out as a drink offering. And here's a beautiful testimony of Paul and John Mark reconciling. As Paul is at the end, he's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. And he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Did you catch this? This is amazing. This is restoration modeled. Hey, there's a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas. John Mark, he goes AWOL. Well, we got guys going AWOL all over the place, don't we? We got Onesimus running to Rome. We got John Mark, he's fleeing the scene. And yet in both instances... In both circumstances, the power of the gospel prevails. Onesimus comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, and Paul is interceding for him to Philemon, saying, look, accept this brother, receive him back. Oh, by the way, we got to remember, here's John Mark, and he went AWOL. He went berserk. He left the scene. He picked up all his belongings, and he ran for the piney woods. And Paul says, look, at the end of my life, Paul is saying... Bring John Mark to me, for he is useful. Church family, do you remember anyone in Scripture whose name means useful? You're right. Onesimus. You're listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. All of Pastor Couch's messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. In addition, you can share your prayer requests with us via email. Our email address for prayer requests is prayer at thisdayministries.org. 
That's prayer at thisdayministries.org. And now, back to This Day in the Word with Pastor John Couch. Do you see how the Holy Spirit works in these glorious writings of Scripture? That here Paul is saying, Oh, Philemon, I know useful became useless, but he's now useful and his name's Onesimus. Oh, by the way, 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. Go get the one named John Mark who went AWOL. Oh, bring him to me. He is useful. Do you see? Do you see the power of the cross, church, today? Perhaps God is speaking to your heart right now. Because maybe it's you that needs to go model restoration. Maybe the situation's waiting on you to take the first step. Because so many times we take the first step and God takes the second and he works and does miracle upon miracle that only he can do all for the praise of his glory. And you got to remember this letter to Philemon was also read to the church. The church that met in the house there in Colossae. Philemon verse 2. Therefore, don't miss this church family. The once severed relationship between Paul and Mark would have been well known in Colossae. They would have known about this. Now Paul lists Mark's name here to the church, to the private letter of Philemon as is being read there. He lists Mark's name. He is modeling the restoration. He's not asking Philemon to do something that he himself is not willing to do. And so many times in my life and your life, that's exactly the case. We're asking people to do something that we're not willing to do. And God, through his word, right here is showing us that Paul is putting his money where his mouth is. And Paul is saying, look, Philemon, I need you to do this. It's not only the right thing to do, it's the God thing to do. And I need you to accept and receive joyfully Onesimus as he comes home. Because it's going to model to a watching world, Philemon, how you are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the one thing your flesh does not want to do, and that's to receive the one that desperately hurt you and wounded you. And maybe that's you here today. That someone's hurt you and wounded you. And perhaps today's your day that you extend the love and the forgiveness of Christ in spite of what they did and because of what God did for you through Jesus Christ, your Lord. What a great reminder to us. What a great reminder to Philemon in this letter that Paul himself had a severed relationship. And that relationship with John Mark was restored. And it was only by the grace of God. And that's why key number two, I want you to write this down. Key number two, write it down. If I am to intercede for others, I must believe that God can restore even the most damaged relationship. Let me say that again. Key number two, write it down. If I am to intercede for others, 
I must believe that God can restore even the most damaged relationship. See, in Christ, people can change. But it's only in Christ. Because we are all beyond self-prepare. I can't do it. You can't do it. It's only in Christ. See, our God is the God of impossibilities. Amen? You may be standing today on the edge of your Red Sea experience. Maybe the Egyptians are on your tail. They are in high gear and they are chasing after you. And you have nowhere to go. Stand still today and see the salvation of the Lord. But who else is listed here in this who's who band of brothers? Well, there's Aristarchus. Means the best ruler. And in Colossians 4.10, don't miss this. Paul also refers to him as his fellow prisoner. Boy, this who's who list and these band of brothers, they're all fellow prisoners. Isn't it amazing the strength that comes from one another when we're really in the trench together, in the foxhole together? Boy, if this is pie in the sky and we're just kind of reading about what's going on, it's hard to identify. But when you are truly in the bunker together, when you are fighting the war together, when you are charging the hill together, when you are charging the beachhead together, all for the glory of God's praise, it's amazing what happens. Your hearts become knit together. You become one in Christ Jesus. You will not bend. You will not buckle. You will not break. There is something that happens because two are better than one and a threefold strand cannot be easily broken. There is strength in numbers. And the power of the pack as the gospel goes forth is so, so key. But what about the next name that's mentioned here? His name is Demos. It means governor of the people. See, he was once, past tense, a fellow soldier with Paul in the battle. Once gone by. But at the end of Paul's life there again in 2 Timothy, he makes this statement in verses 9 through 10. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demos has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. See, Demos did not finish well. The allure and the trappings of the world and the selfie life and the be-centered life and all that the world offered became so intoxicating. It pulled him in. It sucked him in. And here's the deal. Paul says, look, Demos, who was once with me, he has forsaken me. Paul says, look, he has totally abandoned me. And Demos is leaving me stranded. See, this is the part we don't like. We want the Christian life to be floating on clouds, eating bonbons, playing harps, all the while floating through life, singing kumbaya. And yet this is not how this works. We are in a battle. It is high time we wake up. It is high time we shake up. 
and realize that we are in a battle. But the good news is this, the spiritual battle that is raging around us today, the glorious, glorious, great news is that the battle belongs to the Lord. And yet in this battle, there's always a demos, one who abandons, one who leaves stranded. In this battle, there's always a Judas, one who you thought was with you, but betrays you and leads you to your cross. See, that's why key number three is so important. It's a hard truth, but write it down. Key number three. Here it is. If I am to intercede for others, I must embrace that some people will abandon me in the process. Let me say that again. Key number three. If I am to intercede for others, I must embrace. Put your arms around this. Put your mind around this. I must embrace that some people will, it's going to happen, will abandon me in the process. The startling reality in your life and my life as we run hard after Jesus is this. When you stand for the truth, people will, they will throw you under the bus all in the name of Jesus. Welcome to ministry. Welcome to following Jesus. Welcome to walking the narrow way, which is the road marked with suffering. Welcome to being a human pinata so that good... Welcome to being a human pinata so that the gospel might go forth. See, this is par for the course. And the vast majority of the people in the American church don't want to hear this, don't want to believe it, and yet it is reality. Think about it. Paul is not known for starting mega churches, for jet setting around the country, uh, signing autographs and glossy eight by tens of him smiling, leaning against a tree, nor even autographing the inside of his latest book deal that's on the New York Times bestseller list, nor attending church growth conferences and people fawning over him, how great he is, worshiping him. That's not Paul. Paul was known as the abandoned apostle. Shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned by friends. Everywhere he went, he's causing riots. Some resume that must have been. And yet the reality is when you walk in the light of Jesus, those who claim Christ, but who are actually dancing with the devil, will get pretty hot under the collar, be warned. See, they become incensed, furious. Why? Well, here's why the Gospel of John tells us. Chapter 3, we love 3.16, but how about 19 through 20? John 3, 19 through 20, here it is. Here's the why. Here's why those who say they love Jesus but really don't love Jesus, here's those who say they've given their life to Jesus but have not given their life to Jesus, get ticked off when you live for Jesus because it makes them look bad. And John chapter 3, 19 through 20 tells us, and this is the condemnation, and this is the damnation, that the light has come into the world. And men, here we go, men love darkness rather than light. Why? Well, here's what the text says. 
Because their deeds were what? Holy? Not a chance. Because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates, despises, detests the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Boy, when the truth is on trial, when we're about to be exposed for who we really are, woo, those are fighting words, aren't they? Boy, we will do anything and everything to protect us in the midst of us being exposed. And someone once said, when a toxic person can no longer control you, they will try to control how others see you. The misinformation or lies will feel unfair, but stay above it, trusting that other people will eventually see the truth just like you did. See, in the midst of restoration, there are times when people will gloriously with a smile and one hand raised for Jesus, kick you in the shins. But we must rise above this. We must understand, again, key number three, if I am to intercede for others, if I'm to model this restoration, if you're going to do this today in your life to that family member, to the co-worker, to the person even at church that has hurt you so deeply, if you're going to model this restoration, you must embrace that some people will abandon you in the process. But who else has Paul mentioned on the who's who's list and the band of brothers that we're looking at today? Well, last but certainly not least, here's Luke. Lucas means light giving. The beloved physician who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. See, he was with Paul to the very end. He stayed the course. He was with his brother, his comrade in the trench, in the bunker. He did not abandon him. He stayed true to the very end. And Paul alluded to this when he concluded in saying, my fellow laborers. See, when we collaborate for Christ, our aim from that point forward should be to moment by moment by moment by moment simply abide in unbroken fellowship with Jesus. And be in his presence. That should be our aim. When you and I collaborate together to advance the gospel, we should be moment by moment aiming with the goal of never leaving his abiding presence and just resting in the true vine Jesus. See, Luke was with him to the very end, and that's why here he even mentions in this text, he says, my fellow laborers. Literally, it means this, a companion in the work. It's where we get our English word synergy. That we have synergy. We are moving in the same direction. We are moving towards the same goal, the same objectives, with the same strategic plan to accomplish much. And that's the gospel to go forth. And that's what Paul is describing here when he says, my fellow laborers. And as one commentator said, of the 11 people mentioned in the letter to Philemon, Onesimus is in the middle of the list and is the central character. Think about that. The one who actually went AWOL, but came to know this Jesus who is called the Christ, of the 11, is the middle one in the list, and is the central character of the whole letter. See, that's what God does, doesn't he? He takes the least and makes them great in his eyes. 
He takes that which has fallen and broken and completely restores, reconciles, and repairs. This is what God is in the business of doing, and He can do this in your life today. But He can not only do it in your life today, He has the power to do it in the life of that person that's hurt you so deeply. But perhaps God's waiting on you to model the restoration first. See, when we collaborate for Christ, when we have that synergy and that collective bond of affection and hearts knitted together that the gospel might go forth, when we have that with one another, our aim from that point forward should be to moment by moment abide in unbroken fellowship with Jesus and just bask in His presence forever. That should be our goal. To soak and marinate in His presence regardless of our circumstances. And so lastly, verse 25, here it is. We finally made it. Verse 25. Here's what Paul says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your, plural, spirit. Amen. This is Paul's signature salutation. Grace, charis. Many times we call it unmerited favor. Grace of who? Well, again, who's the focus? Who's the object? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the possessor of us. He owns us as our Lord. He's Jesus. Again, means Jehovah is salvation. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of the Living God. He's our Redeemer. He's our Atoner. He's the ransom that paid the price for you and me. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And be with what? Your spirit. All of you is what Paul is saying. He's given this blessing, and then he says this word, amen, which means so be it, we agree. It literally, it makes what was said my own in agreement. When we say amen, we're saying I agree, I believe. And Paul is saying one simple word at the end of this private letter, amen. See, key number four is... So mission critical, and I pray you don't miss it. But here it is, and I want you to write it down right now. Key number four. If I am to intercede for others, I must embrace that true restoration. Not half-hearted, but true restoration in damaged relationships is ultimately only by the grace of God. Let me say that again. Key number four, mission critical. Here we go. Write it down. If I am to intercede for others, I must embrace that true restoration, lasting restoration, genuine restoration in damaged relationships is only, is only by the grace of God. See, the grace of God is all about second chances. That's the picture of the cross and the empty tomb. 
When you look at the cross, when you look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, that means this, it's all about second chances in my life and your life as we give our lives away to him. See, the letter to Philemon is all about second chances. And Paul is imploring Philemon, he's imploring the readers of the house church, and he's imploring you and me today through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand this, that the grace of God is all about second chances. And the way in which that God's grace is often manifested in that situation is by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 shows it so clearly. And when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Did you catch that, John 16, 8? He, the Holy Spirit, will convict. You and I are not to be the Holy Spirit Junior. That's not our role. That's not our title. Now, can the Holy Spirit use us in the process? I shout a hearty amen. But we cannot go before and we cannot lag behind. The Holy Spirit has to lead in the process. And we follow and we're obedient to whatever we're asked to do. Because the reality is, you and I are totally incapable of manufacturing the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this. It's only a work of Him, the Holy Spirit. We can't pretend. We can't try to make this up. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that that work can be produced and manufactured. Don't try this in your own strength. You'll fail. I will fail. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says it like this. But we have this treasure, the gospel, if you will, in these earthen vessels, these jars of clay, these dung pots, just to be very true and real. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See, that's the whole key, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure, this glorious message of hope and security, and identity, and redemption, and rescuing transformative power. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this message. It's bottled up, if you will, in these treasures. It is housed in these earthen vessels of you and me who truly have given our lives to Christ. And the point is not that so people will see us. The point is so that they will see and come to know this Jesus who is called the Christ. And Paul knew this. He not only wrote this, he lived it. He believed it. How about you today? Do you believe it? Do you live it? Do you model restoration? When people look at me and people look at you, do they walk away from us going, wow, I feel really refreshed? I feel really restored. I feel really encouraged. Or do they leave my presence and your presence kicking the dog that they don't even have? They're so upset. They're so furious because we have just literally just sucked the life out of them with complaining and murmuring and grumbling. We're not restoring. We're bellyaching. And yet we still profess oftentimes we love this Jesus. We oftentimes profess we've given our life to Christ. But does our life give evidence that that profession is truly real? I can go buy a spacesuit. I can get in my car and drive to Cape Canaveral. 
I can literally wear the spacesuit, look the part, go into the main offices of NASA. I can sit there once a week. And yet the reality is if I'm not really an astronaut, even though I'm in the building, even though I'm wearing the suit, if I'm not really an astronaut, at some point that's going to be exposed for what it really is. So many people dress the part as a Christian. They'll show up to the church house. They'll sing the right songs. They'll put a tip in the offering plate. They'll crack open their Bible on Sunday morning. But the reality is there's so many that do all those things, and yet they're eternally lost. They've never given their life to Christ. It's all cheap grace. It's all about what Jesus can do for them. And yet the Bible screams when we truly give our life to Christ, it's all about what we can do for Him and His glory to advance the gospel, to make much of Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, end quote. Wow. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. The Bible is very clear. Unless I repent, unless you repent and turn from our wickedness, we will die in our sin. And because of that, D.A. Carson made this beautiful statement when he said this, Happy is the Christian who sees in every sin, every sin, a monster that could easily ensnare him eternally were it not for the grace of God. Let me read that again. D.A. Carson. Happy is the Christian. Content is the Christian. Joyful is the Christian who sees in every sin, not just some sins, not the big sins. No, we're talking in every sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, in the finite human flesh, that person sees in every sin a monster, a monster that is lurking, a monster that could easily ensnare him or her eternally forever, were it not for the grace and the goodness of God. Oh, praise be to the one who took our place. Praise be to the one for his amazing grace. Praise be to our great God and King, the Lord God Almighty, who suffered and bled and died. And because of that, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Oh, he, oh, he washed me white as snow. Amen. And so as we conclude our study in Philemon, here's our takeaway question. Write it down. Do I desire restoration in a damaged relationship? Simple question. Do I desire restoration in a damaged relationship? Perhaps the damaged relationship is not horizontal between you and someone else on this earth. Maybe the damaged relationship is you've never been reconciled to God vertically first. See, you will never be reconciled to those horizontally unless you're first reconciled to Christ vertically. So what's the action step? Well, here it is. I will seek God and then obey. Don't miss this. In whatever He desires for me to do, 
regarding the person or the people that I need to forgive and or seek forgiveness from. Let me say that again. Here's your action step. In the conclusion of Philemon, we've made it to the end. After a long race, after a long journey, a long marathon, here we are at the end. And here's your action step. I will seek God. And then obey in whatever He desires for me to do regarding that person or people that I need to forgive and or seek forgiveness from. You know, many years ago in the early 1900s, a man once said this, confess all known sin, get rid of everything doubtful, obey the Spirit, capital S, immediately, proclaim Christ publicly. It was once said in the early 1900s, confess all known sin, get rid of everything doubtful, obey the Spirit, capital S, immediately, and proclaim Christ publicly. And so how do we tie a big red bow on this glorious study of Philemon? How do we do this? Let me ask you a question. Did you notice something about the conclusion of the letter? There are no details whatsoever about what actually happened after Philemon receives the letter and how Onesimus responds and is treated upon his return. See, the secret things really do belong to the Lord. Amen? However, however, did you know in church history it's been revealed that Ignatius of Antioch wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he was addressing a very new bishop by all names, Onesimus. Is that the same Onesimus who ran away? Perhaps. We don't know for certain, but many scholars believe it is. Wouldn't that be just like God? I mean, wouldn't that be just like God? To take a broken mess like Onesimus, who goes bonkers and AWOL and flees the scene all the way to Rome, intersects Paul a thousand miles away, comes to know this Jesus who is called the Christ, and wouldn't that be just like God? Just like Him. To take the mess of a life and turn it into a beautiful message. To show off that this runaway servant has now been reconciled. He's been redeemed. He's been restored. How? By the cross and the empty tomb. And what happens then? He gets elevated to a role in the early church. Would that not be something? I'll tell you what it would be. That would simply be the power of our great God. That's what he's in the business doing. Did that happen for certain? We don't know. But I wouldn't put it past God. There is nothing too big for my God. There is nothing too great for my God. There is no task too insurmountable that my God cannot overcome. There is no sin in your life today that you cannot give to God and he's going to look at you and go, wait a minute, that sin's too big. Oh, dear one today, listen closely. You can never outrun the 
grace of God with your sin. When you are repentant and you're humble and you say, God, I want to give you all that I am. Take my mess and turn it into a message. Take all my tests and turn them into a glorious testimony. Our God today, right now, is able to do that in your life right now. So how about you? How about you? Do you understand that your past does not need to define you? Do you understand this? When you give your life to Jesus, it is His blood. It is His righteousness. It is His holiness that now defines you. Remember that when Christ was on the cross and He said, it is finished. Oh, He was really saying this. Charge their sin to my account. I will pay the tab. I will pay the bill. Oh, matter of fact, I'm going to put a tip on that thing. I'm going to put a tip on that to such a degree that they're going to be eternally secure. Those who the Son has set free are truly free indeed, and we've been sealed for the day of redemption. So what will the conclusion of your story read? What will the conclusion of your story read? You knew the Bible? Great. You attended church? Fantastic. Golf clap. What will your story really reveal? How will it read? Hey, I served in the church. Awesome. We appreciate you. But what will your story really read? How will it end? What's the conclusion? Oh, you knew about the Bible. You read about the Bible. That is fantastic. I am so glad you know about the Bible. I'm so glad you read the Bible. But here's the real question for you and me today. Do you know the author? That's the real question. Oh, I pray you read your Bible. I pray you dive deep. I pray you mine the scriptures. But the question after you read the Bible is simply this. Do you know the author? And does the author know you? Because there will be many, many in the last days that will cry out and say, oh God, we did such things in your name. We were there at church. We went to the potluck meals. We were at church work day. We even fired up the leaf blower and we hate leaf blowers. We did all the things you wanted us to do to serve you. Every time the church was open, we were there. And there's going to be many that cry out in that day. Oh God, look what we did for you. Look what we did. Look what we did. And God's going to look at so many people and say, I appreciate what you did. But the reality is this. You never did the one thing you needed to do. And that was give your life to me. And surrender everything to me. And abandon the world. And give your life to my son Jesus. And allow his blood to wash over you. And to make you a new creation. Oh Father, we come before you today. God, if there's one here today, if there's one listening right now today, that has never given their life to you. Oh God, I pray Will you rip the scales and the blinders from the heart and the mind of the soul right now? I pray, God, right now that you would rip these off their eyes. 
that they would begin to see. Oh God, I pray right now that you would rip them off their eyes, that they would begin to see. They were once blind, but now they see clearly. Oh God, I pray you'd raise and awake the dead. I pray he or she who is dead and walking in sin will be made alive in Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. I pray that many right now will throw themselves into the nail-scarred hands. They will cling to the old rugged cross. Oh God, I pray, do the work and do it now as we give our lives to you, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. Oh God, to you be the praise. Oh God, to you be the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to This Day in the Word, the radio teaching ministry of This Day Ministries. Don't forget that all of these messages are archived and are free to download at thisdayministries.org. That's thisdayministries.org. In addition, if you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word during This Day in the Word, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is info at thisdayministries.org. Thanks again for listening as we strive to honor Christ and impact our world as we spend this day in the Word.